0: like it's been a bit since we've been in 1st John. For those of you who have been coming more regularly, you know we've been going th- through the book of 1st John and a verse-by-verse study of that, of that passage of Scripture. But we've had a couple of weeks off here because we had Mother's Day and then we had a graduation ceremony. And so now here we are picking up again with our study of 1st John. But the title of this morning's sermon is, The Spirit Bears Witness. The Spirit Bears Witness. And that's something I referenced even in my prayer this morning. But when you think about bearing witness, it carries the idea of testifying or establishing evidence or proof for something. And in today's world, there's a number of different ways to prove something or to bear witness to something. And it's all based on evidence. And there's different kinds of evidence. But the two main kinds of evidence that you would use to bear witness or establish the authenticity of something would be primarily physical evidence and then testimonial evidence what somebody would claim or speak to having seen or observed or witnessed and then physical evidence itself that may lend to lend itself toward proving or disproving some sort of a assertion that is being made so when you're thinking about our day we have lots of different kinds of physical evidence that's introduced into Courtrooms, when you're talking about bearing witness or trying to seek to establish the authenticity of some claim or charge that's being brought, depending on whether that's a civil court scenario or a criminal court situation. But some of that physical evidence, it can include things like written records. You could talk about that in terms of paper trails. It could be video evidence, pictures, audio recordings, You have DNA evidence, more scientific-based evidence, fingerprints, all different types of physical evidence that could be introduced or marshaled forward to support an argument or support the authenticity or the veracity of some, some type of a claim that was being made. Now, equally compelling now, but also in John's day, was testimonial evidence. And in fact, in John's day, it was even more compelling testimonial evidence that somebody would bear witness they would personally testify as to the authenticity or the truthfulness of some type of a claim or assertion that was being made and so that is going to be as you're thinking about evidence that would establish the authenticity of something that's the focus of this small section of 1st John chapter 5 that we're going to look at and Lord willing get through here this morning. So we'll see John use both types of evidence, physical evidence and also testimonial evidence, first person testimonial evidence to support his assertion that faith in Jesus is reasonable. So if you're thinking about what is his underlying assertion? His underlying assertion is really twofold. One, faith in Christ is reasonable, and secondarily that living life with Christ, enjoying intimate fellowship with Christ in time now that you have put your faith in him, that's reasonable. So we know that the purpose of the book was to convince the audience, primarily an audience of believers that he was writing to, that living for Christ and taking Christ with you and living life in proximity, intimate, close fellowship with him, that is the only kind of life worth living. And so he's been trying to establish that all along as he's gone through this letter. But of course, you have sort of the world around him and naysayers, if you will, that are seeking to undermine the rational or the reasonableness of what John is, being, is saying. And so he does pause from time to time to throw in an argument or two here or there to say that the underlying faith itself was reasonable because it was based in an object of faith that was worthy and so now if you're going to say that, that that was true of the original faith, we call that first tense faith, justification faith, that point in time where you first decide to put your confidence in what Christ had done for you on the cross, that point in time where you're born into his family. If it was reasonable then, he's basically making the argument that it continues to be reasonable to exercise that faith as a present state of being as you go through life, as you're living the Christian life, that if it were reasonable then, then it's still reasonable now to have the source of your confidence, the source of your focus, the source of your strength in Christ alone, that you live the Christian life the same way that you're saved. That's effectively what he's seeking to show throughout this, this letter that he wrote of 1 John and also today. So if you're already kind of nodding off, that's the thing to take home with you. That's the summary the summary. That's the short version for those of you who are used to uh, getting your information in one-minute increments. So let's open up our Bibles today and we'll take a look at this passage where John is going to seek to establish the authenticity or what is the evidence that would lend itself to to establishing the reasonableness of having faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ at both a point in time and and on an ongoing basis. So Lord willing, here we're going to look at verses 5 through 8 of chapter 5 of 1 John this morning. Let's read, though. Let's just pick up in verse 1 of chapter 5, and we'll get a little bit of context here before we get rolling. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. See, that's the only way to be born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten, that idea that you can't very well be saying that you love God while at the same time you're not loving his children, your fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments, they're intertwined. You can't do with one without the other. You can't be presently enjoying fellowship with God and be directed by his spirit be living life in close intimate relationship with him and at the same time be acting or living life in a manner that's inconsistent with his word, his his will and his plan for your life. That's not possible. Verse four, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What a great verse just to remind us that we don't have victory in anything apart from our faith in the one who can provide victory. We don't overcome anything. We become identified with the one who has overcome by faith in his finished work on our behalf. By continued faith in his ability to deal with the circumstances and the trials and the difficulties that we face in our lives. We have overcome the temptation of the sin nature, the world, and the the devil by having our focus on the one who has overcome and resting in that positional identification that we have as being a child of his. Being led by Him, being empowered by Him, being directed by Him, having His very Spirit working in and through us. Now, verse 6 this is He. Now, verse 5 who is He who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, if you weren't sure that this is a faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone type of an operation, he basically repeats himself to some extent there at the end of verse four and into verse five. Now verse six, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth, and that's where we got the title of our sermon here this morning. Now verse 7. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Let's start unpacking verse 5 here. Now for verse 5, this is all tied together. So we're talking about this idea of this faith that ultimately is the thing that provides us with success, not only in dealing with the penalty that was owed because of our sinfulness, so that was a point in time in the past, but remember that John has this primary focus of speaking to Christian living because he's writing to Christians who he has invested a lot in over over time. He's not introducing them to the idea so much of how to, to be saved, although he does talk about it, and it's something that Christians do talk about as well, but the focus of his letter is, how do I maximize the time that I have available here in time on earth? How do I live this life that's in front of me before that day that I'm looking forward to one day where he's going to come and take me to be where he is, either through death or the rapture? So I know how the story is ends. I know that one day I will completely overcome sin in its entirety as I'll be freed from the very presence of sin as one day I'll be glorified when I go to be with him. But until then, what is this life supposed to look like and how am I supposed to maximize the joy that's available to me in this life? And so John, that's his primary objective, but that doesn't mean he doesn't speak to how was somebody born of God to begin with? And he doesn't, doesn't mean he doesn't mention some of those things, but it's more in passing because that's not his primary theme here. But who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, the immediate context, it has to come off of verse 4 there. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That's a statement of fact. That's not maybe that's true or not maybe that's not true. It's This is a fact. Whoever is born of God will overcome the world. And that we spoke about how those who try to suggest that that's not a fixed fact, that that's something that's a work in progress, that's incorrect. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Where does the victory come from? Ultimately our faith. Now who is this who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this verse, but this is verse 5 here. So who is the overcomer? Who is the victor? Well, it answers the question for us. It's a fun little verse. Ask a question and then answer it. The one who is the victor, the one who is the overcomer, is the one who believes in Jesus Christ. The one who believes in Jesus Christ. And you see how these two are linked together. You can't have victory You can't be an overcomer without faith in Jesus Christ. It's absolutely impossible to have victory over the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Absolutely impossible to experience victory through your own strength, apart from the provision of God to meet your need. Now, as you're even thinking about the cohesiveness of the Bible, the story of the Bible, the, the narrative that has a beginning, it has a storyline that carries through it, there's foreshadowing, there's a punchline, there's a climax, and there's an ending. And as you're thinking about that, you know, themes that you can track throughout, isn't ultimately one of the primary themes, if not the primary theme, that man seeking to operate independently from God's provision for him is a flop and a failure? Isn't that ultimately... The storyline that you need me. Without me, you can do nothing. That apart from my provision, starting with my provision for your sinfulness, you could never be in a right standing with a holy God. And as he tells that story, he tells it with a bunch of different characters in a bunch of different ways. The storyline is carried uh, in different sections by different groups of people. Even the the story of the nation of Israel that dominates the Old Testament certainly as a whole, but as you're going through that storyline, it's carrying this greater story, this bigger story. God loves his creation. He loves people. He wants to respond and interact and live life with people. He wants them to live lives that are characterized by faith, lives that are characterized by dependence on him to do for them what they could never do for themselves. And so you see threads of that. You see glimpses of that. You see pictures of that no matter which section of the Bible that you're looking at. But one is conditioned on the other. There's absolutely no way to overcome or to experience victory on a spiritual plane regardless of which part in this story you were to turn to. There's, there's no one place you could turn to where victory was available apart from faith in God. Not one. And so you're thinking about that. Is that in the front of our thinking? Is that, is that in the front of our minds as we're going through life? That my experiencing the joy that God wants me to experience, the fullness of joy that he has planned for me, that life of contentment, that life of purpose, that life of meaning, that that is directly tied to whether or not in that moment I will be operating with A faith in his provision to meet my inadequacy. His ability through the power of his spirit to empower a life that would otherwise be impossible. Am I resting in that right now? Am I trusting him with that right now? Or am I operating with a mindset that I'm going to fit God in wherever it's convenient? But most of the time, I've got this. I've got this figured out. Some of you chuckle, of course. You don't have to think back too far, do you? Or or that plan didn't work, did it? There's a way that seems right unto man. There's many times, even throughout a single day, where it could creep into your mind that I can do this on my own. I don't really need you. That is the crux of Christianity, friends. If we were to never speak of anything else over this pulpit, that is the crux of Christianity. Am I going to seek to do this with him by means of his power, by means of his spirit, or am I going to try to do this on my own? One is tied to spiritual success. One is tied to misery and failure. That's it. It's not more complicated than that. And you're like, well, you sure talk a lot for something that's not very complicated. So are you saying we don't have to come back next week? No, you have to come back next week because we'll have to remind you of that again. I'll have to remind myself of that again. But you have, as we move forward, these two words, overcomes and believes. And they're both in the present tense. This indicates that we're talking about a present state of being. The one who is presently overcoming is the one who is presently believing in Jesus, the Son of God. So he's not talking about first tent salvation here. He's talking, remember that his primary audience and his primary emphasis is practical Christian living. His primary audience is Christians. His primary emphasis is Christian living, intimate fellowship. And so that's what he's saying here. This initial faith that he was talking about, and I believe verse four was more focused on that initial faith. So that initial faith now, it brings about a positional victory which was addressed there. You have overcome. That's a fixed fact. You will one day completely overcome. But you've overcome because you're now identified with him and he has overcome. End of, end of story, period. But in this life, if you want to practically be overcoming, having victory over the enemy, it's going to be tied to, am I going to be presently believing in what Jesus has done for me and continues to do in my life? Am I going to be operating by faith as a, as a present state of being? So initial faith brings positional victory, but now we're talking about a present walk of faith. This is what the book is all about. A present walk of faith is the secret or key to Christians continuing second tense victory. This faith here is we're talking about continuing to believe continuing to believe in God's provision to meet your need, to direct your life, to undertake in ways that you could never do for yourself apart from him. Now we're really talking about John's principle from John 15, which is the principle of the Bible, which is apart from me, you can do nothing. Not some things, nothing. So, as we develop this thought a little bit more, you have the sense that your first victory positionally was by faith and all subsequent victories are by faith as well. So you've heard it said probably, if you've come here for any length of time, that the Christian life is lived the same way that you got saved. Well, how did you get saved? You had to exclude self Where is the boasting then? If Christ has done everything to make this possible, when we're talking about first tense, positional salvation, if Christ has done everything, then the natural question is, where is boasting in that if Christ has done it all? And Paul's natural answer to that question is, it's excluded. There can't be boasting if you're putting your dependence entirely in the provision of another on your behalf. Where would the boasting come from? There wouldn't be any. Now, take that same principle. You take it the Christian living. Where would the boasting be? If the only way to be successful in the Christian life is if God is working in me, if it's yet not I, but Christ working in me, where would the boasting be? It would be excluded. See, living the Christian life is done the exact same way that you are Saved to begin with. And Paul communicates this in Galatians 2.20. That was the inspiration for the song that we sang here this morning, and here it is. I have been crucified with Christ. Happened at a point in time in the past. It had ongoing results, though, into the future. It's no longer I who live. To put your faith in Christ meant death to self. Death to self-dependence. Met putting my confidence and my rest completely in Christ's provision for me. So now it's Christ that lives in me. You died, but your life is now hidden with Christ. Well, you're a dead man walking in that sense that the, that former bit of you is no longer the thing that is in focus. What's in focus is this new life that's been made possible through this new birth and this empowerment of the Spirit of God now inside of you so that it's Christ's very Spirit that's working in and through you when you have your eyes focused on the Lord, when you're a yielded instrument in his hands, when you're willing to say, here am I, send me. He's not gonna make you live this life, but the true Christian living is life that is lived in Christ, life that is lived in connection with that positional identity with him and the abandonment or the death of self. So now the life which I now live in the the flesh, I live by, now this is present tense now. I'm living it by present faith in the Son of God. This ongoing dependence on Him. It's not just a one-time easy button. Turn my light off here. That's how I used to fix this annoying sound in one of my first cars. Just had to hit the dash hard enough. Stacia can bear witness that that didn't work all the time. It was a low coolant sensor that was malfunctioning and it would just go like this. And she'd say, is there some way to disconnect that? Honey, it's only another hour. (laughs) Oh, I used to think I looked so good in that car. She tells me now in hindsight that that wasn't what won her over. We got astray here. We got off track. Those, we'll, we'll do the rest of those stories another time. But now presently, this life that I'm presently living, I'm presently doing that by faith in the Son of God. Can we see that? Can we wrap our minds around that? Can we get a hold of that? And the answer is we can't get a hold of it very easily. We don't do a very good job with that. Uh, We vacillate back and forth on that. And God wants to, in an ever-increasing measure, he wants to convince us that that's the only way to live life. That's That's the only life that is worth living at all. It's the only thing that actually is life. What we thought was living, it's not really living anyway. So I came across this. It has been said that the hardest thing in the world for a non-Christian, so this is the first part of it, the hardest thing for a non-Christian to believe is in the substitutionary death of Christ. Why? Because the natural question is, what can I do for God? Not what has God done for me? So that's the hardest thing for a non-Christian. But the hardest thing in the world for a Christian now is to believe in the substitutionary life of Christ. The yet not I, but Christ Christ. Life. You see, you experience victory in life by His life. Let me say that. You experience victory, We're talking about spiritual victory in life by His. Life. That's what Christ lives in me is really talking about. And as you focus on your position of being in Christ and Him providing for your every need, it affects your condition. Your position affects your practice as you're focused on who I am in Christ. What has he done for me? And I get my eyes off myself and I learn to trust him more. That has a direct impact then on my practice. Not because I'm focused on changing my life or making my life different or polishing up my life, but because I focus on who I am in him, what I mean to, to him, what he's done for me, what his plan is for me what his will is for me, what his word tells me. As my focus is on those eternal things, and as the spirit of God has then given free reign to work in my life, then the spirit of God can produce through me, not because of me, through me, as Christ works in me, this life that would be consistent with God's plan for me. Do we get that? Now, when I say do we get that, do we get that beyond just being able to say, Yeah, I know that's true. Why don't you teach something new this morning? Why do you keep beating on that drum? And it's because do we really, in an experiential way, do we really know that? Are we really knowing that in a present tense state of being type of way? Let's move on to verse 6. So we're talking about, as we end verse 5, we're talking about believing in a present tense state of being, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now we're going to expand on who the Son of God is. This is He, referring to Jesus, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, in case you thought maybe it was someone else that John was now talking about. And not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. So at the most basic level, these next verses through verse 15 serve to provide evidence supporting the legitimacy of Jesus as a worthy object of one's past and present faith. Past and present faith. And this, this this argument is going to run through the end of verse 15, really. But remember that John is saying if you want to thrive, if you want to experience success, it's going to occur by continuing to believe in the provision of God on your behalf, which is to continue to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit inside of you. So... While there is consensus that the general purpose of this section is to validate faith in Jesus, there is little agreement beyond that. So pretty much every scholar that has looked at that agrees this section here, agrees that the purpose of it is to validate your continuing, your past and then continuing faith in Jesus as the solution to your need, both at a point in time and over the course of time as a present state of being but there isn't much consensus beyond that about what exactly this phrasing is all about this is difficult language here this is he who came by water and blood what is that referring to exactly and it is the spirit who bears witness what is that referring to exactly there's a, a number of different views on it so when you're thinking about what does came by water and blood refer to there's at least six, at least six different explanations about what that might be referencing. We don't have time for six different potential views. I'm going to share three with you this morning that I think are the most compelling. And I'll tell you which one I like the most, but that's the best that I can do for you on this section because I don't know. John doesn't tell us exactly what he means by this is he who came by water and blood. But here's a few possibilities. We're going to call this first one the flowed from Christ's side view. The water and blood flowed from Christ's side, and that's the view itself. It's, I guess, a shorthand way of saying it. See, this holds that John is referring to the blood and water he personally witnessed flow from Jesus' side as he sacrificed himself for sinners. So this is he who came, he did what he was seeking to accomplish through the shedding of blood and the flowing of water from his side as he died a sacrificial death on behalf of sinners. Now, John talks about seeing this in John chapter 19, verse 34. It says this, But one of the soldiers pierced his side, reference to Jesus, with a spear. And immediately, blood and water came out. So, as you consider this view, the word order is a little different there. Uh, This one has water and blood here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Here in John 19, he has this reference to blood followed then by water coming out as Jesus died in the place of sinners. And as a continuation of verse 5, talking about that belief in Jesus as the Son of God, Son of God referring primarily to Jesus' deity, now that would, you would say that's the person of Jesus. Now, John, to continue that, would give some evidence about the validity of putting your faith in the work of Jesus. And what was the work of Jesus? There's no greater example of that than his sacrificial death on behalf of sinners. So we often talk about the person and work of Jesus and in conjunction with verse 5 here, The person of Jesus is that he's the son of God. He's God himself. He's incarnate. He's the God become man. And then verse six, what is his work? His work was that he died on a cross, a death he did not deserve for the guilty who is you and I. So the two together present a more complete view of the object of the believing from verse five by reflecting again on both the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now the second possibility as to this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, or to rephrase that, Jesus Christ is he who came by water and blood. What is that referring to? Well, here's another possibility that it's referring to Christ's birth or his incarnation. So this view focuses on his actual birth. John does record Jesus as associating water with physical birth, so Jesus Himself does make this association between water and birth. He says this in John three five, as He's speaking to Nicodemus. He said, He answered, "Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, referring to your physical birth, and of the Spirit, referring to your second birth, your your spiritual birth and the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there has to be two births." Two births. He's saying you have to be born again. What does he associate the first birth with, though? He associates it with water. That's Jesus speaking. Now, this view is a little less compelling to me, just because he doesn't reference blood at all. But you know, blood is certainly also naturally associated with physical birth as well. The pains and travails of of childbirth are well known to. All of the mothers here and some of the fathers here, uh, depending on how much they had their ears open or their eyes open when that was happening. So there's, there's no inconsistency, you know, to have a view like this. It, it makes some amount of sense. If you were to continue with some of the language, this view is kind of attractive because this word came. So this is Jesus Christ is he who came by. This word came can also be translated arrived. And by can carry the idea of by means of or through. So this is, Jesus Christ is he who arrived by means of water and blood. You can easily picture that as referring to the fact that he was the unique God-man who gave up heaven, took on the form of a servant, he humbled himself and was born as a man, the unique God-man, fully man but fully God. So that's an important bit of theology, that God was willing to become a man so that he would have the ability to die in the place of sinners like you and I. So is that for sure what this means? No, I, I can't say that that's for sure, but that's one of the things that supports or adds to this argument. So while Son of God in verse 5 again was focusing on Christ's deity, this interpretation highlights Christ's humanity. So if you speak to his incarnation, the fact that he was born, you can't speak to his birth without speaking to the reason he was born in the sense that with, apart from a physical birth, he could not have died. So that's pointing back to his work too. So remember the first one was a little appealing because it pointed to his person from verse 5. He's the deity, he's the son of God. And then in verse 6 now here, it'd be pointing to his work. Again, his birth, which again led to his sacrifice. So that's another view there. Together, both views I think are plausible. This is personally the one that I like the most is the third one now i, I don 't say dogmatically you should agree this is what it 's talking about, but this is the one that I happen to to like the most and there 's others if you want to go research this more uh, there 's others besides these three that i i 'm covering i don 't think it 's necessarily critical, necessarily critical because everybody agrees that the point of all of this was to authenticate and validate the reasonableness of having. Put your trust in Jesus Christ at a point in time in the past and continuing to put your trust in him or believing in him in a day-to-day intimate fellowship type of a way to experience success in time in living the Christian life the way that God intended. That is what everybody agrees that this is about. So some of this is, I don't know, it's a little bit on the academic side as to which one, but this last view is called Christ's baptism and death view. In this view, came by is taken as a term of association with something since the word can also be translated among or with. So a lot of these transition words, they can carry many different meanings in Greek. And so a lot of these, these smaller transitionary words, they, they could give you one view or another view or support one view another word, but this can carry, came by, can carry this idea of association among or with. He came with baptism and death. That accompanied his arrival on planet earth and it accompanied his, his then public ministry. And so that's more the focus here is on the public ministry. This view focuses on the totality of Christ's earthly ministry by highlighting historians that served as the bookends of his public ministry. Now the first one as Jesus came to greet John, who's known as John the Bap- Baptist, different John than the John who is writing, First John here in the gospel according to John, that as he, as John saw him coming for the first time, he, he exclaimed, he, he cried out, this is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He then, Jesus asked him to baptize him. And so that really began his public ministry. And so if you're taking this bookend kind of a view, that this is just saying that everything about Christ's public ministry validated that he was who he said he was. Everything about his public ministry reinforced or gave credibility to this conclusion that he's a worthy object of one's faith. That this covers it all in a sense by pointing to the totality of his entire ministry. So here we have baptism to start off with, the water. In this view, the water is referring to this start to his ministry where John baptized Jesus. In Matthew 3.17, this is referring to this event where this happened. It says, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's what was uttered by heaven as Christ was baptized. So you have Christ present, of course. You have the Father present. You have the Holy Spirit alighting on Jesus like a dove here in this very well-known public demonstration of the beginning part of Jesus' public earthly ministry. So kind of three of them there are there together at one. They all are bearing witness then in a sense uh, that everything about Christ is legitimate and authentic and worthy of your faith. Now, in this view, death is synonymous with blood, the blood. Jesus' death was the culmination of his public ministry. So when you're thinking about the bookends view here, this is where it's coming from. So we have Ephesians 1, 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The blood is very important as we're thinking about the death, what it symbolizes. It's not blood in and of itself. It's that the blood symbolizes his death in your place, in my place. That's why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we do it as a way of remembrance. We symbolize his blood within our case. It doesn't say what you need to use to symbolize his blood. We symbolize or remember his blood using grape juice. Here at this church, other churches use wine, uh, whatever else it could could frankly be water. It's about a mental remembrance of what Christ had done for you, but through His blood, that was the forgiveness of sins. Now it's all about grace. It's all about God giving us what we don't deserve, as He died in our place, as He died for the guilty. See, both terms have the effect of describing the same thing, though Christ's ministry. So John is effectively presenting Jesus' entire public ministry while on earth as vital information. He's reinforcing the status that is claimed by verse 5 of Jesus is the Son of God. And his entire earthly ministry, John is saying, if you take this view, bears that out. It proves it. It establishes it. It gives the foundation or the substance that would make faith in Christ reasonable. It it, It would make him an object worthy of your trust. And so Jesus himself sort of says that about his own earthly ministry. And that's why I like this view so much because Jesus himself says, my purpose for doing many of the things that I did for even the miracles that he did, the walking and talking, the teaching that he did, it was to establish that I was who I said I was. You see here in John five thirty six, Jesus is speaking and he says, but I have a greater witness than John's. He's referring to John the Baptist there. What's the greater witness than John the Baptist? For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, now what is one of the purposes behind them? They bear witness of me. Bear witness of what about me? That I'm authentic, that the Father actually sent me, that I am the Son of God. So if you're looking at these works of Jesus, his, his ministry, his public, his public life, that was demonstrated to so many people, they bear witness of his authenticity. Now again, that doesn't have to mean that this is what this section is about. But the primary focus though, in taking this view, is on the work of Jesus. There is no saving knowledge of Jesus Christ apart from the understanding of what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross. So this is putting the focus on not only who is Jesus, but what has he done for you? That that would be, the in this view, the focus of the water and the blood to put the focus on what has Jesus done. Verse 5 told us who he is, but what has he done? So again, the greater purpose is to present a complete view of the object of the believing by presenting again both the person and the work of Jesus Christ now i don 't know i 'm not sure which view is correct again i don 't think it really matters because I think this is the this is our focus. If we get that focus, we know that we understood what John was trying to do here. John was trying to show us that. Jesus is a worthy object of our faith at a point in time and he's a worthy object of our continuing faith in living the Christian life. And it's, it's really that simple. Now we go on to this next phrase and it is the spirit who bears witness. Remember, this was about establishing though. This whole section is about establishing authenticity or the foundation for your faith in Christ. Now he's going to move on to an eyewitness, a test someone who's going to testify. He pointed to physical evidence, the blood and the water. That was physical evidence regardless of which view you take. It was physical evidence. Now we're looking at testimony though. It is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth which didn't fit on the screen. Now we have a continuation here of the courtroom motif that we've been looking at here where bears witness is rendered testified in most translations. So what we're talking about is testimony. It is the spirit who testifies. So the Holy Spirit bears witness that Jesus is the Christ. The Holy Spirit bears witness that believers are the sons of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness that we can enjoy victory over the world as we abide in Christ and are filled and led by His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate witness. The witness of all three of those things. Here, the reasonableness of our faith in Christ, the legitimacy of faith, but he bears witness not only of that, but he bears witness of our sonship. He, he bears witness that there's victory available if one would just walk by independence on his provision for us to live the life the way that God intended for us to live life. So you have that here. There's no more reliable witness than the Holy Spirit. That's where you see that phrase, the Spirit is truth. The Holy Spirit equals truth. The Holy Spirit is incapable of anything but truth. So then the Holy Spirit is the one that is held up here as the ultimate witness to the authenticity and the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at a couple of verses here that bring out these three different aspects to how the Holy Spirit is bearing witness. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We have Matthew 3.16. So we're back to this baptismal passage. When he, Jesus, had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. There's where immersion baptism comes from. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, The Spirit of God was bearing witness to the authenticity of Jesus Christ from the very beginning of his public ministry here. It was, a, it was a visible sign. It was a visible testimony where the Spirit of God in effect in that moment would be testifying that this is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is the Lamb of God. This is what you've been looking for. Now unfortunately, Many did not accept that, but yet the Spirit does bear witness that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the Son of God. In our second passage, or example here, we see that the Spirit bears witness that believers are the sons of God. We see that here in Romans 8.16. It says this, the Spirit himself, here's our same language, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We know from Ephesians chapter 1 that the spirit of God comes in and dwells the believer the moment that he or she puts their faith in Jesus Christ as a down payment a guarantee of our future inheritance that one day we will go to be with him because we are his children through faith in what he had done for us on the cross and that he will never let us go. And so that's the second aspect of it. There's other verses you could bring out, but I just wanted to give you a touch of it. Verse, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, now the Spirit bears witness that we could enjoy victory over the world if we would just abide in Christ, if we would just walk by means of his Spirit. And then most of you know this verse. I say then, in Galatians five sixteen, walk in or by means of the Spirit. And while that's happening, this is my very spirit, he says, that has taken up residence in you. It's me living in you, Christ says. It's Christ in you. If that's happening, as a present state of being, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So now we'll move on to verses 7 and verses 8. These are complicated too. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. So we have this Phrase for there are three that bear witness. And every Greek manuscript before the 13th century that's known of ends with the word witness. So for there are three that bear witness, that's all there is to this verse in every manuscript before the 13th century. So it's not a big deal. I'm gonna bring out why it's not really that big of a deal in the sense that nothing that is added here Is inaccurate. It's all completely true. But no other major English translation includes the remainder of verse 7. Every single other translation ends with, For there are three that bear witness. Now, what is that in reference to? Well, logically, it's reflecting back on what was just said about the blood, the water, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. There are three that bear witness. Witness. But the insertion of the Father, the word which is a reference to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, that's speaking to the Trinity. Does the Trinity bear witness to the authenticity of Jesus Christ? Sure they do. At Jesus' baptism all three were present. Jesus was there. The Holy Spirit was there. The Father spoke from heaven saying this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So it's possible that that's where that got pulled from. But if we if we make that adjustment, the entirety of verse 7 would then read, for there are three who bear witness. Now, if that's the, if that's the case, then this phrase continues the thought of verse 6, and it becomes the summary statement that concludes with verse 8. This is just a summary. All of the emphasis then moves to verse 6, that there was the blood, the water, and the spirit, all as testimony of the authenticity and the legitimacy of, of Jesus Christ, and it's just a way of concluding that thought, the, all three of those are in agreement. They're all in agreement in support of that conclusion. And so if we take that view, that's how it would go. Now, again I already mentioned what was likely inserted in verse 7 is doctrinally sound all members of the Godhead testify to the same truth about Jesus being the son of God and the savior of the world that's what verse 6 and verse 5 are talking about Jesus is the son of God Jesus is the savior of the world all three of the Godhead obviously would agree with that but if we move on to verse 8 and there are three that bear witness on earth the spirit the water and the blood and these three agree as one Now we're going to see that this part here is all that's included in all of those texts before the 13th century and in every translation except for this one. And so now if we piece the two together... So we have in every other major translation, this translation, this verse is limited to what follows the colon, which I just circled. So combined with verse seven, the sentence should read, for there are three that bear witness, then you get your colon, now you get verse eight here, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. So the idea that you're getting here from these last two verses is this. The public ministry of Christ, in combination with the confirming testimony of the Holy Spirit, authenticate Jesus as a worthy object of your faith. Now that's if you take the view I do, which that the blood and the water are referring to Christ's public ministry. That those were additional authentications of, specifically when we're talking about his public ministry, his baptism and his death. That those were combined with the affirmation of the Holy Spirit, those were used to provide authenticity and to support the legitimacy of putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone as the worthy object of your faith. And so there's a lot that we went through to get to that conclusion, but that's what this section that we've been looking at here this morning is intended to communicate. I will say this, that idea there is true regardless of which one of these views. There's no view that, that makes such an extreme take on these three verses, that it would change the basic idea. The basic idea in all the views is still the same. You need to have believed in, at a point in time, Jesus Christ to save you from the destination you were facing, which was a future spent separated from him in the place where he is not, in the place reserved for Satan and the angels or designed for them, the lake of fire. The only... Escape from that is to put your trust in the solution offered through the person, work, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you were to do that, then you would be born into God's family. Now he has a plan for your life. He wants you to live life with him. He wants you to include him in your life. He doesn't want you to exclude him. He wants you to involve him in what you're doing. He wants you to live life in intimate fellowship with him. He wants you to then by doing that experience the byproduct of that fellowship which is the abundant life he's speaking of when he says I didn't come just that you would have life but you'd have an abundant life. In my presence there is fullness of joy. I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon me because he's trusting in me. I want you to experience that kind of a life and you'll only do that if you're believing in the present if you're continuing to believe in the present that God is worthy of your faith. That he's the one that you need to be depending on. That he's the one who's going to have to empower this. That he's the one who's going to be directing that. That idea is true regardless of which one of these views one might hold about this. So we have our title, The Spirit Bears Witness. That's the most important part of this. And the question is whether or not you have been convinced to place your past faith at a point in time in the past, put your faith... In Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is testifying. He's bearing witness that Christ is worthy of your faith. The question is, have you put your trust in him? Now you have while you're alive. You have this life. To make that decision. Will I accept Jesus Christ or will I reject him? The second question then is if you are saved, are you presently putting your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ? So did you in the past put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Are you right now where you're sitting? Are you in the circumstances that you're facing? Are you in the trials that you have in front of you? Are you in the roads that you're on? Are you presently putting your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his provision through his spirit to give you a life of godliness, a life of fulfillment, a life of contentment, a life of peace, a life of joy that is otherwise impossible? See, that's the key to everything there is no present or future life apart from faith in him. So I pray that you become convinced by the testimony of the Spirit of God here this morning, if you hadn't been already, to put your faith in the work of Jesus. And if you are a believer, I hope you've become convinced by the testimony of the Spirit of God, that Christ continues to be worthy of your ongoing focus and emphasis and faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time that we could spend here together. Thank you that you're such a good God, a loving God, that you provided for not just our problem with sin, but that you've provided a way for us to live life in a manner that would be abundant, in a way that would be filled with joy. Pray that we would see that the only place to find that is in your presence, that we'd want to live life with you, that we'd want to include you in life. Pray that you'd help to convict us and convince us of that as we go about our days this week. In Jesus' name, amen.